the path of uh, growth and consciousness and love for a man is to, in leaving mother, I would say a refinement of the feminine energy uh, into manhood. And because our society has so little ritual, we basically stay boys. The other thing would be then to work with one's dreams. Just that as a welcome uh, mat, an invitation uh, to the unconscious. The Big Hormone Enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovic, uh, sexual self-prez, holding five wing, four five eight trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-prez, sexual nine with one nine seven four trifix. What up? It's Emika. I'm an eight wing seven, sexual self-prez with eight five four fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy. I am a self-prez social three wing four with a If you like our podcast, guys, make sure you go like and subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. And if you really like us, you should definitely leave us a review. So, everybody, this is Curtis. This is uh, Curtis has been a longtime friend of mine and uh, men's group leader and fellow breath worker. Nice. uh, Emika and David and Nancy. Nice to meet you. Welcome to the party. (laughs) Thank you. So what the hell are we doing? So, <laughs> so I wanted to Curtis, I wanted Curtis on because Curtis is very interesting, but also you know we did that serial killer pod, and a lot of it got into like men's like what's fucked up with men, basically. Yeah, yeah. Which right. I mean, really, what isn't? But yeah. Yeah, and, and what what is about the male psyche that relative to the female psyche that uh, lends itself to serial killers and to just you know I mean. I think, Nancy, I asked you something about what it was your experience as a woman of just feeling the vibes of creepy dudes. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> they're everywhere. And, yeah. And just like, you know, like, I mean, there's creepy women, but not to the same way, not in the same level of threat. Totally. And it's not just based on men having more muscle mass or something. There's, there's that obsessive fixated thing. And so I've been in a men's group that Curtis has led for a long time. And I, I just thought that, especially for given the audience of our podcast is probably mostly women, and also that in I, I feel like given that in culture things are so like almost like hypersensitive to gender and sex differences in a way that flattens it, that it might be mm. interesting to go really into specifically men's issues. Like in the men's group, there's an archetypal individuation journey that males have to go through that's different than women's and. Being in the men's group and working with men has like had such a different feeling from any kind of other inner work I've done. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it has a lot, there's, there's so much about aggression and owning it together. And, and I just thought, I don't know, I just thought all these kinds of issues uh, Curtis could really speak to from a place of like, you know, expertise and, and be very interesting. Thank you for that lovely accolade introduction, John. <laughs> well. I'm from Montana, which is where I am now, grew up here, and uh, after graduating from college here, went to New York City uh, to conquer whatever I could find. And so Wall Street, I got there um, and climbed the ladder, 
uh, was successful, worked for a major hedge fund eventually um, as a trader. In those days, I was in my 20s and it was quite, uh, it was the 80s. So it was quite a popular time to be uh, considering oneself a master of the universe and actually not knowing much of anything. Um, but that was sort of a propellant down there. And so there was that experience. And then life changed dramatically uh, after I got married and uh, to a New York uh, woman, the beautiful woman, and, uh, and also had my uh, first child, who was uh, a daughter. And um, that, um, speaking of individuation process, that blood ritual of the birth of a child uh, transformed me from basically a kind of noxious patriarchal asshole uh, into a kind of Woody Allen-esque figure. Uh, sort of <laughs> dancing around with the maternity nurse who has uh, managed to get a smile out of out of my absurdity. And um, I really was quite um, taken by the magnitude of the creative act um, that happens in a birth. Uh, I, I just was uh, uh, confounded by and uh, enlivened by some part of me was it was as if uh, shock paddles were administered to my heart that had been long dormant. Um, so uh, when that happened, basically life changed for me. And so though I lingered on Wall Street for another couple of years, as B.B. King says, the thrill was gone. Then the next foray was. Uh, raising my children and um, being a dad, which I enjoyed immensely um, and learned a great deal and also started uh, out on my quest. There was a show, I'm sure you guys all know, uh, Joseph Campbell was interviewed by Bill Moyers in The Power of Myth. And I saw that uh, program and was stunned uh, that this activity existed and I didn't know anything about it, a mythology and the unity of all uh, mankind, humankind, uh, as is well described I, I would, in my uh, naivete about the Enneagram, I would say what is exactly what the Enneagram seems to be describing most poetically and so uh, I set off on my own course of individuation and his fellow Carl Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, a Swiss uh, a psychologist uh, and psychiatrist was being quoted by uh, Joseph Campbell often. And so I decided I would start my study of that. So um, it began with reading and soon led to uh, therapy. Uh, because I wanted to figure out the wild dreams I was having post-Wall Street. And that led into uh, further training. Uh, I studied with uh, Christopher Whitmont, who was a co-founder of the Jung Institute and a direct student of Carl Jung's. And from Christopher, I learned the power of the dream and its interpretation. Um, here today, I, I estimate 
that I've uh, interpreted some 15,000 dreams uh, in the school of uh, the old school of Jung. And um, so that was a quite a fascinating journey in and of itself. Then a strange thing happened. After Christopher died, I'd said uh, I wanted to be an actor at one point, uh, not a regular actor. No, that would be too uh, easy. I had to be a Shakespearean actor. And this was something that I'd loved since I was a child. Um, my mother was an English teacher. She had a copy of Shakespeare there and all of his works, which I devoured, um, not knowing what the hell was going on, but somehow being drawn to the magic of the words. And my particular favorite, of course, was Hamlet, um, which I practically memorized. Um, so I decided I would try that with the urging of the Christopher uh, uh, had said that actors were a dime a dozen. So I, I needn't do that. I should become a good Jungian. And so it's, well, after he died, I thought, well, why can't we do both? And so I pursued that career and actually managed to go to the top of the ladder on that one, which was for me, uh, which was not an Oscar or anything of Tony or any of that, but it was uh, that I got to play the part of a mountaineer, Greg Mortensen, um, based on his best-selling book, Three Cups of Tea, and which was quite popular around uh, 2010, uh, New York Times bestseller. And I was actually able to travel with Greg, play the part of Greg and 12 other characters in a one-man show uh, directed and written by Wynne Hanman, who was at the time the star catcher of, of, the, uh, of Broadway. And, and so I was blessed to have that experience for two years. And uh, that, uh, after that, uh, I decided that I would um, quit acting. Uh, as much as one can stop acting uh, in life and focus more on being myself. I sort of run my uh, limit with some 50 plays and uh, all the characters involved in that. So I'd, I think I thought the best character I would like to be now would be myself uh, for a change. And so that led me uh, to further study study of Jung, and I was in a men's group for a long time, Jungian, uh, led by a Jungian analyst, Dr. David Morgan. Uh, so I decided to commit myself full-time to that, and so now I've got some 20 years of a, in men's groups. Uh, we do dream work. We do uh, also, I've, I've studied uh, homeopathy pretty extensively gone to Mumbai and studied at a clinic there. Um, and that basically brings us here also, I must mention, that John and I met at the Inspiration Community, Consciousness Community, which is a breathwork training uh, school, and studied many years together the breath under the auspice of Jessica Dibb, who is the founder of that institute. And uh, also, I believe, uh, quite. Uh, active in the Enneagram world, mm -hmm. as you yeah. guys all know that. Um, so graduated from there and just been trying to put that uh, uh, mishmash all together into one beautiful elixir. So that's my, that's my story in a nutshell.
So the reason I moved to New York from Olympia, where I was living, was to study breathwork, but I didn't like Baltimore where the school was. So I lived in New York and would travel back and forth <laughs> on weekends to Baltimore to do this breathwork stuff. And yeah. I got to know Curtis because Curtis lived in New York also, and we'd have mm. these uh, four to five hour long car trips where we'd go in different dimensions talking about all kinds of crazy shit and mm. uh, got to be close from there. And yeah. Curtis uh, was encouraging me to be in a men's group. He was uh, going to start for younger guys and like a men's group sounded like the absolute last thing I'd want to do just because I didn't know what it was and like hanging out with a bunch of dudes. And um you know, eventually over time, Curtis convinced me that it would be something rich and useful and interesting and that it was, you know, based around uh, Jungian sensibility. And so um, while since COVID, I have not been able to participate much because my Gurdjieff group con conflicts with the men's group. It's hard to explain to people who are not in a men's group what a men's group mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's to me, I, the experience I have is it's kind of like a seance in a certain way. Mm. where somebody um we curtis is a black belt and so we do uh we do taekwondo training which has been really amazing for me and mm. a lot of that's focused on and mike's my, my impression at least is, is is focused on um how to consciously use aggression and use aggression with other men and not sort of push down our aggression which is something that i think that our upbringing encourages at least men to do and then generally one of the men uh, has the stick. It's like a big piece of driftwood. And either for just one uh, evening or for months, they might have a certain issue or collection of issues that are usually based in something archetypal, based in some, some, something related to their own particular unique path of individuation that we address. And so for listeners, uh, I wanted to have Curtis on here to sort of pick up some of the um, things we laid down in the serial killer discussion podcast that we had a couple of weeks ago where we were talking a lot about men's issues and mm. why are generally men serial killers and not women and and what are the kind of uh particular issues in the male psyche and that uh lead to something like serial killerdom and not necessarily that i want to talk about that but i just like i, I think specifically focusing on men's issues is something interesting and not something i see a lot out there in a very sophisticated way um, and Curtis, before we continue, do you mind if I offer what I see as your Enneagram type? Or sure, sure, you have a better idea than I do. Yeah, so I see Curtis as a sexual self-pres three with a four wing with a five and nine fix. And uh, I don't know if you guys see picking up some of that, but um, that's my impression. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask midway through. I was like, "Are you a three? Yeah. So Nancy's also <laughs> a three. So anyway, Curtis, I was wondering if you could uh, speak to like what a men's group is and particularly like in the group, we talk a lot about individuation and through the the framing of, of men leaving motherland. And I was wondering if you could speak to some of that. Yes. I wish to um, gently preface my uh, talk about the men's group with the idea that each human to me channels at least probably many more but at least the predominant energies of the masculine and the feminine mm -hmm. to one degree or another so that um, women also carry the masculine just as men carry the feminine 
this was a founding interpretation of Jung, uh, which was a hundred years ago, which I think speaks of his uh, depth and breadth in according the feminine a great deal of respect and much so. So talking of leaving motherland, if I may start out with a kind of genesis uh, spiritually, the origin of most creation myths begins with darkness, which would be attributed to the infinite uh, of the feminine, the unconscious. This darkness, which is not considered evil pre-Christian, but rather a chthonic, mysterious, the holder of great secrets of life and death, and the intelligence of the becoming of consciousness. John, you uh, inst uh, initiated these thoughts to me at one time when we were having one of our uh, four-hour drives, which always felt to me about 20 minutes long, thanks, <laughs> thanks to you, um, which was that the great feminine of ancient Egypt uh, was probably, at least in theory, uh, an instigator of the masculine mm -hmm. as a particular road of individuation toward mm -hmm. consciousness, masculine consciousness, mm -hmm. and that culminating in the probably the pinnacle of where we are right now, which is the spiritualism of uh, technology and the rational mind since the enlightenment, basically. And so we are at a kind of time right now of crossroads where the consciousness of the masculine has run its course and we are confronting the great Mother Earth ecologic crisis that threatens uh, the very existence of many of the species on the planet and uh, certainly humankind as, as one of them. Uh, so what to do? Uh, we seem to have reached the end of our ability to solve problems, at least thinking our way out of them, although Elon Musk may have some different ideas than I, uh, bur burrowing into the earth or flying off into space. I, I kind of like uh, the earth as home. I sort of have grown attached to it. I love nature, actually. And uh, I think there's a great beauty to be found in nature. And I sense the Enneagram is in a great way, a kind of map and compass both toward that orientation of nature uh, that we're just, at least to me, now discovering. Uh, so it would be a shame to end it all just when we've found the tools to really, I hope, become human and explore what the very word homo sapien uh, means, wisdom, which would then circle back to Sophia, the great darkness, the great dark mother, and wisdom. So I sense, uh, thanks to John, that we've sort of come full circle here and that the integration of the masculine with the great feminine is part of a marriage which Jung talked about extensively in his many 
the studies of alchemy, which as you probably are well aware, is the marriage of uh, sun and moon, king and queen, and those two married together mythically, becoming uh, a conjunctio, which delivers a divine child, which is symbolically a promise of the future. And I sense we're here right now in this time, and we're seeing the rise of the feminine, uh, the 60s movements, and also with the Me Too movement, also with the legalization of gay marriage, and the entire movement toward uh, uh, sexual identity as being more than just uh, one or two or one, whatever we have, and just the questioning and the polarization of what's happening now in the world seems to me to be leading to a possibility of a unification of those polarities in an unknown and mysterious third element that is unimaginable. So we're getting a lot of polarization in the world. Uh, certainly our election this go-round for the president of the United States exemplifies that to me, uh, where the country itself, it seems, is split almost evenly uh, between what we call red and blue, but somehow a purple might come from that polarization, which is quite extensive. Um, I don't know how. I can't believe it. I don't know. How that would even manifest. Yet that is actually, to me, the secret of alchemy and also the secret of Jungian uh, psychotherapy. So, with that as a background, and the men's group is a, a Jungian based uh, movement, it's based on the early drum circle work of Robert Bly, who was the author of Iron John which many of you probably know as a seminal work in uh, the masculine through the integration of the feminine and becoming a man by integrating one's feminine and also moving out of the motherland uh, from having a relationship to a woman as a boy would to his mother, which I imagine, although I don't know, but I sense I've gotten the consensus on this from the women I know, is quite boring, actually, to have a partner who expects to be mothered by them, rather than someone who is equal in anticipation of life, and they can share in both their masculine orientation and their feminine orientation, each helping the other. So the original movement of the men's group was to come out of that uh, approach uh, that most men in the patriarchy seem to have, even to this day, no matter their age, which is to be a kind of puer eternus, an eternal boy, and face the world as a boy, uh, and never really maturing into any kind of responsible relationship with the feminine, especially Mother Earth, but just there is something that they could exhaust and pull upon for resources until. You know, it was all over. Um, so, Curtis, are you yeah. are you saying that the path of individuation for a male is integrating the feminine, and in in a way that's that's with that's taking the the projection of the feminine as mother outward and bringing inward 
and that's what sort of develops the, the masculine soul? Yes. The first big task for a man is to leave his mother. Mm-hmm. And no matter the age of the man, uh, that is a, an accomplishment that Jung considered uh, a lifelong work. Freud also said the first person a man marries is his mother. And then we go from there. Uh, the, the leaving of the mother, Jung considered an opus of a man's life. And moving more toward his terminology, the anima, which was a distillation of the feminine energy from mother to a feminine counterpart and actually leader uh, of the man, a guide, a spiritual guide, anima also means soul, uh, into his path of individuation. We could see that from the work of Dante uh, in his Inferno, where Beatrice is his guide, at least to the, the doorway. And then he goes down himself to find the wise old man, Virgil. And that, in an allegory, is a way, uh, in, in an encapsulation, in a way, of the work of the men's group, which is to have the uh, anima developed in our group, appreciation of the feminine as guide, as soul, and then have that soul lead us uh, to our father. The path of uh, growth and consciousness and love for a man uh, is to, in leaving mother, to then follow father. And so often in our society, the father is an absentee uh, character. He might be sitting there uh, the whole time, but he's not there. Mm-hmm. He's reading the paper or he's having a drink. Uh, uh, or he's talking about sports. Uh, uh, I'm generalizing. Please forgive me. I'm sure there are many beautiful fathers out there now. Um, in my time, though, that was pretty much what you got. And so the task of the men's group was to find how each man was not only exactly like his father, despite any protestation that we might have that we would never be like him uh, if we were rebellious or that we would love to be like him if we thought he was uh, the golden uh, side of masculinity and find a more human side to him by differentiating his darkness, which most likely we would be living unconsciously, and also finding his gold, his golden shadow which can be equated to his creativity, his ability in the world to create something of his own. And uh, so that, in, in a nutshell, also is uh, the emphasis of the men's group. And as John mentioned, we did that through getting in touch with the body, martial arts, um, also appreciating the feminine through the study of our dreams. and. Uh, then, as John mentioned wonderfully, having a big hunk of driftwood as the stick, and each man would speak on a topic, um, basically exploring the subject of intimacy with all facets of our life and the countervailing forces that usually come up when we 
a man approaches intimacy, such as uh, murderous rage is a big one. Phallic shame is an enormous uh, counterpoint. Um, the ability, once we approach intimacy with especially the feminine in any way, to want to skip out, to think that the grass is greener on the other side, uh, to find something else to divert us from that intimacy. And, and, and a fourth uh, is uh, the void, that when approaching intimacy, we feel often that we're approaching like a black hole that we will be sucked into and never escape. And inside of that deep blackness is loneliness. So those are sort of the points that we found so far in our exploration with the men and what we're working on right now. So you laid out a, uh, a, a lot, but um, in, in, in an amazing way. And so there's a couple questions I have that I don't know if they're separate or they're all together. So I'm just going to ask. My, my first question would be, uh, what is it like, why would we want to like for a listener, why would we want to leave motherland? Cause we all love our moms. Right. And like, why would mm -hmm. that be, doesn't that seem like it's, uh, almost like a masculine turning against the feminine or something. So that's one mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. And like, what is, what is motherland? Why would we want to leave? And then what are the elements of masculinity? Like what is masculinity from this point of view from like, what are the traits or qualities of it? Especially, um, in the sense that that would require or need uh, the the leaving motherland, and then finally, um, within this matrix of questions, why why do those things like murderous rage, phallic shame, skipping out, and the fear of loneliness or the void? Why are those what arise in at least the masculine psyche mm -hmm. um, when approaching real intimacy? Yeah, leaving motherland. Now, why? I don't know. Uh, is the straight answer. All I do know is that it is a mythologic motif found in every culture throughout time. Joseph Campbell described it as the hero's journey. And the first initiation step of the hero's journey is the leaving of the mother, uh, the death of the mother, actually. The son leaves the mother, and that causes a death. Now, this is mythologic, and so it's not the physical death of the birth mother, but rather the mother inside of his heart, that he has to leave the home and set out on his adventure. Also, as I mentioned before, this is when we say, when we speak of archetypes and mythology and fairy stories, a male in a fairy story is not masculine it's not a male in the human sense but the masculine energy so this would be the masculine energy in a woman and a man that they must leave the mother and set off on their own this is done usually in our society not so well uh, with the advent uh, when uh, male or female uh, turn uh, through their catechism, usually in the church, there would be some kind of confirmations uh, idea or bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. That is a kind of relic of the old uh, rituals that used to allow this movement 
into teenhood or young uh, adulthood. Uh, nowadays, we don't really have much. The military used to be a ritual uh, for a young fellow to go off and to do that. Now it's both sexes, uh, but that's sort of not as ubiquitous as it used to be. Uh, so we've got basically our rite of passage uh, for our society nowadays is to get a driver's license and also to be able to drink alcohol, which is a wonderful combination. Or have sex or something. Well, yeah, even that is a sort of on the side, the, probably the most majestic uh, thing that I can imagine in my life, at least, has been the wonder of the intimacy of sexual relationship and even more so sensual relationship, which would incorp uh, encompass all facets of love between masculine and feminine. Again, I mean those as energies. Uh, and so, and the culmination of that in uh, the birth of a child, even if we use that metaphorically uh, to mean creativity. So uh, that leaving of mother is the first initial step in the mythology of the hero's journey. And, and so that's sort of the cards were dealt. One thing I would add that my experience or something that seems to have come up around motherland in terms of the group is men self-sabotaging or like unconsciously self-sabotaging to sort of keep themselves like to mm. keep a certain psychological status quo. Do you, does that uh, ring true for you? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yes, absolutely, John. Uh, and that self-sabotaging, I would say, is part of the ineffectual ritual of leaving uh, the mother. Now, I will say, to complete the story, that we always return to the mother. We are born of mother and die mother. This, the grave receives us as Mother Earth receives us. We are born of dust, of clay, and return. So the leaving of mother is, I would say, a refinement of the feminine energy uh, into manhood. And because our society has so little ritual, we basically stay boys until advanced old age. If something of a cataclysmic nature doesn't come and shake us in our, down to our boots, we used to call this midlife crisis uh, that would shake a man from his you know, boyhood. Uh, nowadays, I've noticed that it's we could even call it a quarter-life crisis because the urgency, if I may, Mother Nature, to wake men up, to wake the masculine up, uh, is really of urgency. So young fellows such as yourself are seeking at a very early age to find what they were not given as far as ritual passage into manhood. So yeah, we self-sabotage in a way that is uh, a kind of instigation into a ritual. For instance, say any of the 12-step addictions, often considered self-sabotage, are a pathway into the 12-step movement. I happen to be familiar with that um, because the first, uh, I was one of the, the only men in the first eight men of our elders group it wasn't in 12-step program. And they found their way to Jung 
through their addictive capacity, self-sabotage, and then into the 12-step movement, and then through that into Jung and men's group and trying to find their own creativity, which they considered to be the 13th step, their own creative action. This topic of self-sabotage is interesting because um, one of the things that came up in the serial killer call was mm. the idea of insecure masculinity playing itself out in um, a lot of conservative cultures where, um, you know, like guys emphasize trucks and big trucks and guns. a lot of like, you know, guns and Southern dudes, a lot of serial killers spring out of that sort of thing. And so I was wondering if that is a manifestation of masculine self-sabotage because we're missing all these rituals and, and uh, individuation processes that would be there in the past. These examples of like proud boys and, you know, men doing really extreme things. And is that a, an example of masculine self-sabotage to kind of get oneself into this, um, I don't know, initiation process? Yeah. And thank you, that, uh, Amica. That was, uh, it's a beautiful question. And one I, I work with uh, quite a bit, as you say, conservative uh, elements. But we also find it in the liberal also. Each, each light has its shadow. Um, that these posturings are rather an archetypal dimension. So that if the boy never receives the uh, rite de passage, uh, the ritual passage into manhood, that he would become uh, fatherless in a way and cling to a kind of archetypal masculinity. Now, that could be uh, someone who is soft and giving and believing in equality as a status quo, or someone hard and conservative and has a rifle rack and a big uh, four-wheel drive, and that's just what our position is. But see, and then we get this polarity, and that allows safety. It allows safety and, in a way, a, a, a subtle, unconscious self-sabotage, which is I can always cast my shadow across the way because there will always be somebody else that I can look at and see, well, see, they, they're not like me. And for Jung, this was going to be the biggest problem of our time, because the projection of our interior shadow upon the other, he felt, would lead to, with the advancement of technology, and he lived to see, died in 61, so he saw the effects of World War II and Hiroshima and Nagasaki and what the technology of man had had produced in World War I and World War II, that a man's, a human's ultimate destruction would lie in the projection of shadow onto the other country where we're safe to bomb them uh, because they are something else. They're not human. And so this polarity and shadow projection, he felt, was our greatest challenge. And so, uh, one of the parts of the masculine golden shadow 
that we work to uh, distill is, uh, and this will turn around to eventually, I hope, uh, this idea of murderous rage and what comes up in the serial killer, uh, to my limited study, very, very limited, uh, and you guys know a lot more about this than I do, especially you, Nancy, I heard you speak most eloquently on it uh, from the podcast. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And the golden aspect is very simple and in, in all deep spiritual traditions, which is basically the golden rule. And to love thy enemy as thyself, love thy neighbor as thyself, and, uh, and since Freud and Jung for a hundred years or so now, it has been to love thyself and in particular to love our own shadow, which is uh, quite a concept uh, to grapple with. And uh, my uh, Christopher Whitmore, my teacher, listen, there's one commandment, love yourself. If you can do that in a lifetime, you will have accomplished all. And the rest is all commentary on how to do that. So I would say that is the aspect that we're trying to lead men toward in the men's group. And then what is the shadow? And then we come to these variations on the theme. One of the four which I mentioned, John, you, you pointed out, was this idea of murderous rage. Once uh, intimacy is attained, a byproduct or complement, actually, psychologically and ironically, it would seem to the conscious mind, one of them is murderous rage. That if we get too loved, if we receive too much love, a counterbalance to that will be rage. This is quite a phenomenon to me, and I'm amazed at it still, though I've lived with it for now uh, several years uh, through the works of the groups. And I sense also that a way toward intimacy, they work both ways, they're polarities, the way toward intimacy is murderous rage. It is a very strange concept, and we can judge it as a psychopathology, a schizophrenia, uh, that shows up in men. And as was mentioned beautifully, uh, Nancy pointed out in the podcast, that often these men, almost universally, have a strong attachment to mother and uh, almost an inability to escape mother. And I would say they are rather a polarity of intimacy with mother. Now, there's another topic that we might go into, though it's a big one, and I don't want to give it short change, but that is the topic of the death mother. Most often, the great shadow in our society uh, is this aspect of the death mother that is a biologic and uh, evolutionary fact of the feminine that, for the most part in our history as humans, the father and mother had often scarcity of resource, famine, uh, no food. Uh, drought, and the tribe would be under great duress. And as there was no formula through most of the history of mankind and no milk bottles, uh, 
it was the woman who had to provide the nutrient uh, breast milk and feed the children. And as there was no birth control, she might have uh, several children needing milk at the same time. Now, this uh, posed an impossible situation for both father and mother. Uh, unfortunately, usually the mother had to make the hard choice, and that was whether the child, which child was going to receive nutrient and lived. Um, about 150 years ago was sanitation and the drastic drop in infant mortality. Uh, that decision no longer had to be made by most of our society, especially in the developed so-called nations. And so the death mother aspect of having to decide which child would die in the period of uh, starvation was forgotten and left in our shadow, our unconscious shadow as a collective, though it is still quite prominent. And it sometimes comes up to surprise us when, for instance, a mother uh, takes her children out and uh, systematically eliminates them. Uh, this is quite a shock. We don't know what has happened because aren't all mothers good and pure and loving and that is what we have grown up with. And that is true. We have emphasized the golden mother. And this is brought up in our religion through the aspects of the Virgin Mary. We know only the goodness of mother, the wholesomeness, the mother of God. We do not look at the shadow aspects of the feminine. Uh, yet it is still there. And so when the serial killer uh, is raised by a death mother, uh, then he carries that lack of love and lack of intimacy. So in my humble estimation, what can happen is that he will attempt intimacy with the feminine through a rite of passage, and as was mentioned beautifully by you guys, really wonderfully, I thought, uh, listening to the podcast, it is almost a creative act. Mm. Uh, these ritual uh, slayings and the almost artistry and the wonderful uh, correspondence that you guys drew to art itself made me think at that moment in listening to the podcast, which I, I would say might be most of your listeners would say, well, now isn't that positive? Art is the positive aspect and the negative is this sort of um, psychopathologic uh, creativity with, as you guys mentioned last time, the use of the skin and turning them inside out and Jack the Ripper and all. Now, I would say this is a act of murderous rage in order, strangely, to become more intimate with the feminine. It's as abominable as it is to the psyche of these people, it makes complete sense and is almost an act, forgive me for saying this, but I feel it is accurate, almost an act of uh, sacrifice to make it sacred, uh, that they are seeking their anima in these various victims, that they want to individuate. That is the primary goal of 
uh, consciousness and the great dark mother is to have a human being individuate toward consciousness and another word for that is love. And so they are seeking love, as crazy as that sounds, and it is crazy. And so they do these acts and, and they perpetuate it. It was interesting, and I believe Amika brought it out uh, in the podcast, that the activity of this has seemed possibly to have been alleviated by the uh, relative availability of pornography in any kind of variation that you want. So that the sexual intimacy, at least at that second chakra level, could be worked out in play rather than acted out in the physical, uh, that it could be playful and that a sex worker could work it out with the individual in safety and that the psychic need of intimacy and love could have been attained um, without the blood ritual, which happens in the gross uh, physical exaggeration of the psychological necessity. This is very interesting. And also um, something I just wanted to bring in is, is part of the reason uh, I think that this archetypal lens is useful is like, you know, we're, we talk Enneagrams, like what does it have to do with Enneagram? But mm. um, we were big into inner work of various kinds and different ways of exploring that. And one of the things that I think that Enneagram and even fourth way and a lot of um, inner work modalities that I've studied sometimes neglect is this archetypal dimension mm. and how it's not necessarily separate, but it's easily overlooked of like owning shadow and exploring the shadow. And a lot of, a lot of inner work um, can become spiritual materialism is Trung, mm. uh, Trungpa Rinpoche talks about with, with sort of, um, the more awake and present I am, the more points I get for myself. And I try not to see the parts where I'm asleep. And a lot of, at least my emphasis on inner work is, you know, that, that being, a, being self-aware means seeing where you're asleep, not how giving yourself points for how awake you are. Mm. And this, the, the archetypal dimension brings us to the body and it brings us to aggression and sexuality and, and all these these sort of forces that sometimes are treated as things to either overcome or secondary to the overall in, inner work process. And so I think that this archetypal uh, lens and, you know, David is very archetypal in his outlook uh, himself. And I think our podcast generally relative to other stuff that's out there has been good about owning the sexual element and the sort of aggressive element and the, all, all these sort of things in the mix of something like the Enneagram, which is, you know, can be treated um, either in a very pop psychological way or it can be treated in a very um, sacred, almost like highfalutin way or professional way. And so anyway, the archetypal um, realms is, are particularly interesting, especially as you're speaking to Curtis the individuation of masculine and feminine bears um, a great deal on uh, the world stage. Yes. I would like to uh, say, hello, David Gray. I went to your website. A wonderful uh, examination of the sun wheel. Uh, beautiful. And under John's description, my four and five would be uh, below the line of consciousness. So 
<laughs> Maybe that's why I concentrate on the shadow, uh, and that's part of my work. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, one thing that's coming to mind most immediately from just pinging off of what you were just saying, you know, th there's a, a way to frame up kind of this ongoing conversation that we maybe are Johnny one notes on is this thing of people sort of wanting to essentially almost change the definition of the two types that are under that are in the underworld, which is types mm. four and five. And it actually your discussion there of the deaf mother is is almost a way to frame that up coming from what you're saying there is that people are collectively refusing to acknowledge the dark mother mm. and they're wanting it to be like type nine is particularly um, guilty of that, but all the types, you know, maybe in some to varying degrees or are, are doing some amount of it um, or other types are contributing to it. But like nine is sort of, Rep representative archetypally of this sort of midday, you know, pure, absolute, idealized sunlight, right, right at the top, at the crown, mm. uh, the midday sun, and and four and five are the underworld and death, and and that sort of dark pool that is the feminine, that you know, sort of maybe Western mythology has made evil right yes when it's really just the the empty um field of existence mm. right yes um anyway it's interesting as a as a collective phenomenon even in the enneagram world that there's that um mm. rejection of that particular kind of darkness mm. much of what our podcast and our group of Enneagram people represent to um, the rest of the Enneagram scene is sort of like saying, hey, we need to look at this shadowy stuff, or at least what people mm -hmm. consider shadowy stuff that they've kind of deleted, because it's like no one wants to really talk about the sexual instinct being uh, about sexual attraction or four and five being pretty uh, negative types. And um, so it's there's a way that collectively people are turning away from the shadow. And it's really interesting to hear about that mm -hmm. death mother thing. I mean, I didn't even know That's that was a thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the things that experiences I had was uh, going to India and Curtis was involved in <gasps> uh, me returning from India where like I was in India for a month. So for two weeks, I was with my Gurdjieff group and you know, we went to all these temples and, and it was it was sort of touristy, but it was India is an intense place, no matter how you're going. And then uh, I went with Alaria for two weeks in the north, just the two of us. And, um, you know, we were in really incredible poverty, incredibly poor areas, and we didn't like prepare for it. So we didn't have like high class train tickets to get out of it or or living arrangements that were somehow apart from all the 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 human suffering and bodies and pollution and so it was like an incredibly intense and taxing and life-changing trip and you know at the end of it i was at the varanasi on, on my birthday uh standing amongst burning bodies on the ganges and i mean it was crazy and so i got uh dysentery during the trip and it didn't really kick in until i came home 
like I got some antibiotics and I thought I was better and I was worried I was going to have a parasite, which like you can't get rid of. And so I was like, okay, things, things seem to be okay. And, uh, you know, I went to Baltimore and I was in a breathwork group with Curtis and our teacher, Jessica was like, all right, before we, like, I started getting symptoms again of dysentery and, um, which was one of the most miserable, like experiences of my life. It was, you know, a deep searing pain in the bottom of my gut to the point where I was delusional. Like I was having hallucinations and memories and, and I could, couldn't function. I thought I was, you know, felt like I was dying. And so anyway, um, I'm in this breathwork class and I start breathing and like pretty quickly, I don't remember too much Curtis, but pretty quickly I vomited everywhere. And I had this experience of my chest filling with like a yellow molten light. And Mm. it's only what I can imagine is perhaps like a chakra opening. And Mm. I felt incredibly like from feeling like I was near like dying or just sucked of life force. I was, I felt incredibly powerful and potent and strong. And my personality has changed since then of being more assertive and out in the world. But uh, one of the ways Curtis sort of helped me contextualize that experience was India and and the way it landed in my body was like an encounter with the death mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just resonates this sense of you know, that, that India in the, the parts of India experience, which is not to shit on India itself. It's just like, it's a rough place. And mm-hmm. it was so like the death and the pollution and the, the rot and decay and dead bodies was like, so it wasn't something I could avoid or keep at arm's length. It was like, my body got an impression of death itself. And uh, yeah, it was just such a powerful transformative experience. It's something I wonder sometimes if uh, many of you know that I'm Nigerian, I was born in Nigeria and People who I feel like people who grow up in third world countries have a very different perspective. Like, you know, the experience you have, John, in India. <laughs> no, I'm not, I don't want to say Nigeria is like that, but I've I've had, mm-hmm. you know, from a very young age, I've I've seen and experienced things that would uh put me in a very um close contact with death or just, mm-hmm. you know, really shitty living conditions and things like that. And so sometimes I wonder if the relatively very comfortable coddled experience of growing up in the west um for example like in in nigeria there's not there's not there there are none of these social structures that people take for granted like if something happens to your family member you don't there's no no investigator that's gonna go you know you can't like depend on the cops like you basically have to um, grow up very quickly in, in terms of your perspective of the world. And so sometimes I wonder how, what that does to masculinity here mm. that um, one, people aren't in contact with the forces of nature and how brutal it is. Um, people don't realize how fucking brutal uh, life is uh, because you're just so, somewhat protected from it here. And so I start to think of like, I don't think the phenomenon of incels, for example, would even happen in a third world country. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and so Curtis, I'm interested to see or to hear from you, you know, the, like the experience like John has of growing up in in a place in the world where you're uh, in contact with the brutal forces of life and what that does to the individuation process in men. And is that a reason why we have things like, um incels and and shit like that and a great, great question and i would say john's experience um to me 
And this happens a lot at inspiration consciousness community. These sort of, it acts as a sort of healing poultice that pulled out that sickness uh, from John and sublimated it into a kind of golden light of that uh, solar plexus chakra, the will to be who you are. And I would just say, uh, in my brief experience, though very uh, a rewarding experience of India, uh, what I also saw there with all of the death, and literally I woke several nights uh, uh, with the burning ash of bodies that got into my eyes. They were bloodshot. I mean, that is the kind of, that's what's in the air. Mm-hmm. And mostly I was in Mumbai. If you look at, uh, if you go to the cell phone and look at the weather uh, and, and you put Mumbai on there, uh, you know, you get air quality. <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> <laughs> because basically they, they, you die and they burn you and that's it. It's all one happy family. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing there, the, so death is there, right there. And the cats are skinny. And the dogs fight each other. Mm. It's not like the. Uh, it's not like America. Uh, when I say that, I mean the United States. Yet also, simultaneously, there is this joy and spiritual sublimation that is in the face or in the air, in the ambiance, in the light, in the costume. It is something you can r- literally breathe. And I believe John was the first one to tell me that. I kind of doubted it, but when I was there, it was absolutely true. That's there coexists in India, uh, the great mother country, as a as an archetype. Uh, this simultaneous spiritual uh, intimacy, right there with death, right there with all of the horror. Everything looks horrible, yet it doesn't feel horrible. Mm. It's a very strange feeling. And now, shifting over to the West, the epitome of the West is America, the United States of America, and where we have the privilege to go crazy, in a way. We have that privilege, and John has spoken very eloquently on this several times, um, about um, it is the uh, wonder of the peacock. Uh, with his enormous tail and not doing much at all except waving it about, that is attractive to the female because why? Because he seems so artistic and colorful that he has nothing better to do. And this must mean that therefore he uh, is uh, so, has so much free leisure time that he is a prime specimen for mating. And I sense, though, the dark side of that artistry when not our sexual uh, instinct is not able to find its way into the collective externalization through extroversion into sport, which is a great ritual of violence. And also, as you guys beautifully mentioned, sport as, you know, putting it in the hole, (laughs) you know. Uh, getting it in the end zone. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. That's America. But what happens to the individual, the introvert, 
well, is so damaged they they can't even summon the worth to paint or to write or to draw or to dance. Uh, what happens to that individual who can't cook and is left with all of this libido, the psychic libido, energy, mm. life force in them, mm. and there's no outlet, and they're alone, and they live in the basement, or as was the other uh, aspect that Nancy beautifully pointed out, was some of them are not wearing the mask of a psycho killer. Some of them look like the aldermen of the local you know, parish. Uh, you would never suspect they have nice, everything's beautiful. The chem lawn is, is well-maintained and uh, children and a beautiful, quiet marriage. And the guy's an accountant, yet he's got a freezer in his garage full of body parts. Uh, how does one explain this? Well, that to me would be, he wears the mask of civility and the shadow, which we mentioned, comes out and then he goes and expresses his psychic sexual libido in these rituals of serial murder. And that is, again, their expression. The cell groups, uh, I am not uh, I'm a neophyte, don't know much about. Uh, however, I would say that too is a kind of shadow urging for the masculine to come together as a group. It may be virtual, yet it allows some form of connectivity and uh, sharing and in a way, a kind of expressionism that left to their own devices might not be able to uh, be allowed. So uh, much like the sex workers and the availability now of uh, enormous depth of variety, the sense that I say this cautiously uh, um, and probably in a very general way, that the technology, this is in a way the golden side of technology, that in a way uh, the homicidal urge is ameliorated, remedied, I don't know if cured, but at least remedied so that it's not so potentialized as to act out through technology. I would also just briefly touch on, I imagine World War I was an enormous step forward in technology. We went from cavalry charges and the chivalry of war to an almost an entire generation of the English uh, being wiped out. I mean, it was an absolute monstrosity of uh, warfare. And the mechanization and the chemicalization uh, of warfare with poison gases, etc. That has not slowed it at all. World War II, that was called the Great War, World War I. We'd never do it again. No way. But of course, World War II came as kind of a continuation. And you had even more monstrosity. Uh, aerial bombings of Europe was absolutely devastating, catastrophic of civilian populations, the firebombing of Dresden, etc. It's just terror. What men, kind, humankind can do to itself and with no sign of stopping. Then we have the invention of the atomic bomb, and then the world changed. So an advent of technology, and I'm talking about this is, a, to me, this is a collective enablement of 
serial killing, mass war is a collective enactment of the same archetypal urge. Yet with the atomic bomb, the next world war, the third in my humble estimation, was called the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And, though, and though we would duck and cover in our classrooms and knew any minute that the Ruskies were about to drop the big one, it never happened. It was a stalemate, technologic stalemate. And the generals would go into the war room and look at the computer printout and say, you know, every new plan they had was mutual annihilation, mutual annihilation. So it ended up in stalemate. And now we are left without an enemy. China doesn't want to play ball. They just want to own us. We don't have an enemy. So the United States left without a a convenient target to project its shadow upon collectively has turned it inwardly. And to me, the Fourth World War is going on right now. It's a civil war. So we have the same, we have the same structure that we had all along, yet the archetypes are evolving. And I say an archetype, for those who may not be aware, an archetype is a kind of form pattern of behavior that occurs in every culture, in every time, and is described by mythology uh, and myths. In our time, it would be described in movies, our favorite movie that really resonates with us, probably has an archetypal content that is very close to our our own being, and most likely also our shadow. So this collective enactment of the archetypes, Jung, though he would not publicly say that they were open to change, privately in his letters, would say, yes, they were, that archetypes can change. And in fact, it is the effort of each human during his lifetime to commit himself to something he loves, whatever it is, doesn't matter, whatever you're passionate about, to commit to that with everything you've got. In in so doing, that compassion for oneself and giving worth to oneself would, in effect, educate the archetypes. And briefly, also, just I have the good fortune of having a rather bird's eye view, dealing with clients from all over the world who bring me their dreams and the synchronicities that surround them. And I have to say, it surprises me, astounds me, that most of the large majority of my clients are artistic in some way. And the amount of dream material, archetypal dream material, rather than just, uh, you know, oh, you better ask for a raise or this sort of dream material. But archetypal, enormous dream material is informing them to create, to go for what they love. It is opening doors left, right, and center synchronistically if the ego, us, takes on the task of initiating, like John's solar plexus, that will to initiate. I see in the dreams great promise, extraordinary promise, and archetypal dreams or big dreams, which normally might come for a person maybe once every three, four months. They're happening every week, three, four times a week. There seems to be an enormous call from the great deep wisdom of the feminine. 
to unify now artistically into something that I I don't even I can't imagine or even describe uh, of a sublimation of enormous uh, love, which seems to be uh, based toward creativity as a unifying uh, intimacy among human beings, rather than money. Uh, the patriarchy would say archetypally and astrologically, if you guys are probably familiar with this, moving out of the Piscean era into Aquarius, we are moving out of the patriarchy of Christ, Antichrist, scapegoatism, Cain and Abel, into a new genesis where the great mother is unified with the masculine in a co-creative, generative creativity as our unifying uh, essence. One thing that I want to make sure we get in here, because uh, probably maybe 20 or 30% of our listeners are men, but majority are women. And so for those of them that are listening and whose partners are men and want to get some concrete takeaways from this mm-hmm. conversation as to you know, how do I uh, apply this information? What should men do to encounter the feminine more? Or maybe they haven't completed the individuation process. Like, you know, what should, what do you think men should do in this time? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say long, long answer there. Yeah, just go ahead and fix the world while you're at it. <laughs> or you know, a, a guy listening to this podcast, he's like, okay, you know, I I'm thinking about you know doing something about this based on what you're saying. So, what are some Where next steps? You know, what what do you suggest? I, I'd start with the majority of the listeners, uh, the women, if I may, uh, gently, being of the opposite sex, I am somewhat familiar with my own feminine. Uh, Gently, though, I (laughs) pay great homage to her on a regular daily basis. I would say the women, because they channel the greater, in general, the greater uh, bandwidth of the optic cable of the feminine through them, I'd say they know what's going on. I'd say they feel it. They know it. And with my limited uh, knowledge of uh, the feminine enacted by women, I could say that women have certain powers, guys, that we have no idea uh, what they what they know about us. If we're walking down the street with our lady on our arm, and I'll speak old-fashioned, so I am old school, uh, and uh, we happen to see another. Uh, a woman or whatever your preference is walking the other way and you know we uh, <laughs> we give it the whole yes hi, hi. Uh, they know our woman our love knows that we just did that we think we're getting away with something by giving the other gal the ogle the fish eye <laughs> they, they both know it they know it and they look at each other they probably roll their eyes uh, and think yeah, and so we don't know that, that they know that. Also, guys, if you're you're thinking about kissing that woman and you really feel it from your core, from your guts, you feel, now's the moment. Oh, I'm scared. She knows it already. She can feel it. 
they have powers we have no concept of from our rational mindset. And I say that generally. Not all men are rational. I'm just saying that we're shoved that direction. So I would tell the guys to talk to their to their loves, whoever's carrying the majority of the feminine. And I would say, talk to them. Start there with that intimacy, because there in that intimacy is all of the power. Now, there's a, there is a, a, a certainty about men that gathered in a circle, archetypally, tribally, around a fire, if you can, or just put a candle in the center, men together, shoulder to shoulder. This is an ancient way of discussing problems and resolving them. There is usually a chief, a leader, who allows everybody to talk equally and then at the end decides. That is the format of masculine growth in men. And if guys can put that together, uh, that's of enormity. There has been enormous men's group movement in the United States. And I wish to be very gentle here because it's, it's so difficult to escape the materialism of the mother in our patriarchal fucked upness uh, so that the propensity for these movements to turn into money-making schemes. That's just not it. Somebody like uh, Joe Rogan, for instance. Mm -hmm. Or Jordan Peterson. Or Jordan Peterson, excellent example. Uh, they are men with a certain propensity and certain shadows, I wouldn't say altogether explored. And Joe and, and Jordan and these uh, many others out there um, are, in a way, virtually leading men's groups. And so I'd get acquainted from that first. You know, the, the question of what the hell do you do with all this stuff or, you know, a guy wanting to go on this journey or whatever, the, somewhat of a practical thing, although it branches out into infinity is uh, that book that you mentioned earlier, Curtis, Iron John yes. was, was, was really pivotal in mm. my life. Um, I was very much, uh, very much uh, a motherland boy in the extreme uh my mother died when i was 25 i was still mm -hmm. living with her and then that year uh my girlfriend at the time had the wisdom to give me that book iron john oh my and it's all about how to get out of motherland and my mm -hmm. mother had just died right so it was, oh. it was and it was pretty important i mean as you say, gently, I'll say, it was kind of important that my mother died, right? That I needed that to happen because yeah. I was going to stay there for probably forever. Yeah. And that, that set off a whole kind of journey into, what would you say? In some way, you have to betray the mother space from us, you know, depending on what your particular life story has been. You know, mine was, I was very passive and very much kind of the, the lover kind of love object to women kind of guy, right? And having no experience and no interest really 
in sort of the whole aggressive father world in a way, although there were hints of it in childhood and forays I took into sports and things like that. But it's been a long journey, but, um, you know, into doing things with men, learning about bonds with men and uh, in different fields, business and, you know, even Enneagram community and things like Mm. that. But again, back to somewhat practical, that book is, is pretty phenomenal as a stepping off point into what that means, that whole um, journey from uh, the motherland and stepping off into, well, just coming out of that space and into the masculine or some kind of somewhat more mature masculine. Yes, David. Yes, beautiful. And I found that as a seminal stepping stone also, Iron John, and uh, written by Robert Bly. Another beautiful book, and I probably will mix up the sequence, but I, I believe it is King Warrior Lover. No, no, King Warrior Magician Lover. Yeah, I read that one too. Yeah. The Four Archetypes of, of the Masculine uh, is an excellent. Uh, idea of sort of stages of individuation, and they needn't be in order. For instance, it sounds as if you, David, started out with lover, and then moved into maybe king warrior with business, uh, mm-hmm. etc. And now, if I may, judging beautifully from your uh, your website uh, and the sun, I would say you are perhaps uh, in the magician stage now. I'll take that. Yeah, informed me there uh, as to my own work. And so I would suggest those two books, definitely. I'd also, uh, that's from the masculine side. I'd also, in addition to talking to my uh, feminine counterpart, I would also uh, look into the feminine aspect of the unconscious. The unconscious is considered the feminine in Jungian parlance. Uh, consciousness considered the masculine. Uh, by the way, Jung considered the unconscious far superior <laughs> to the um, minuscule and almost brand new development of consciousness. So we got a long way to go, guys. Um, and hopefully the women will support us in this. The other thing would be then to work with one's dreams. And it can start out with a pencil and a pad on a nightstand by your bed. Just that as a welcome uh, mat and invitation uh, to the unconscious. I'm serious. If you send me a dream, I'll write it down. I'll try to remember it. Try to write it down. That in and of itself can open enormous doors of synchronicity. Just that the ego is willing to take that first step to not consider it from the rational mindset of preposterous. Dreams don't mean anything. What good is it going to do me? How's it going to increase my bottom line? All of that, just to take that step of that leap of faith toward love of oneself. The dreams come from us, a wisdom source. Uh, I deal with them, and they are continually astound me. They are non-temporal. A dream told today, 20 years from now, will still be informing us. So they come from a place beyond space and time, 
from an immortal, eternal space. And they are the compass and roadmap uh, of our existence. I also would work with things such as the Enneagram, which is another very variation of the compass and roadmap. I would work assiduously in that. And I would work toward, from what you guys have talked about tonight, the sublimation of that four and five. And I, I would include uh, three and six also, because they're on the borderline. And borderlines are often uh, in mysterious places. They're crazy the, people. Yes, where, <laughs> yes, where the uh, bipolarity of uh, the archetype, which we haven't spoken of, and I apologize, of Mercurius, Mercurius, Mercury, Hermes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is the great unifier of the yeah. opposites. We have a very good example of the trickster in a high office right now mm -hmm. that I would say embodies almost uh, pure heroine of the archetype Mercurius. That's a good yeah. insight right there. Given That's that uh, as an eight, he's, uh, well, he's got three and six fixes and there's a lot of uh, mm -hmm. chaotic energy with those fixes in terms of just rattling the cages mm -hmm. and you know eight energy is really forceful um and so if well this is just some enneagram stuff but it's interesting to me that you talk about three <laughs> and six sort of mercurial shock mm -hmm. points yeah. and he represents this sort of ultimate chaotic figure yes to go back to what men can do um, I just wanted to call out the three guys that I podcast with. You guys have let me in on like your little like own personal men's group. And I feel so like honored <laughs> because <laughs> sometimes you guys are so supportive. And I honestly had no idea that men could be that way. Like you guys will just gas each other up and just like love on each other. Like I've never seen men do. And it's like, I literally asked my coworker the other day, I was like, do, are men supportive of other men? <laughs> I've never witnessed that. Uh, so, That's like, a really good insight. I hadn't thought about it. I guess. Thanks, got, yeah. yeah, it's just really cute. And like all, every time I look at Joel's, I look at Joel's messages, I'm always shocked by how like kind you are to each other. So just hmm. like find your group. Well, thanks for being part of our men's group, Nancy. Oh, well, thanks for letting me watch from the sidelines sometimes. You're not, not just in the sidelines. You're, you're in the... You're in it. In it. <laughs> you, got, you, even gave, you, you even gave yourself a crew cut so you could... Yeah. <laughs> that was before you guys. I don't think you're that special, Connor. It was anticipation um, to be oh, part of our group. That's what that's about. And as a person who has, like, super vivid dreams every night... Mm. Where can I go? Because I I want to know what the fuck is up with that. <laughs> I will write like movies in my dreams. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so uh, also putting that pad and, and pen, or sometimes it's more advantageous to do it on the phone, voice, because you just have to, you don't have to really wake up, turn the light on. And if you got a partner, you could just kind of, move off into the uh, bathroom and just mumble it out um i would start just recording them and mm -hmm. then asking for help and you, you can go a certain distance with online stuff but really 
uh, one a human relationship is a is a very good start. And so, Nancy, I would say uh, a dream group is often very advantageous. And uh, when you guys put that energy out, someone will show up. I, I don't know if there's that many Jungians around, but uh, <laughs> someone will show up. And if there's an archetypal way of viewing the dream rather than keeping it solely to the personal level, which is valuable, but it, the archetypal uh, level is of such uh, enormous enrichment um, that if you could concentrate on that and form a group and you guys can educate each other. I would love for you to come back on and uh, maybe we do some dream work or something if that sounds cool to you. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, we could do one of Nancy's so dreams. I, I just, just take, take your pick. I got them all. <laughs> I'll start writing them down. <laughs> I'll try. Yeah, let's see if we can all have some dreams ready for the next one. Yeah. So, Curtis, I really thank you so much for uh, being here and giving so much of your wisdom and time. And yes, uh, it's you. a real privilege to have you here. And I'm, it's, I'm, yeah, I'm excited for people to listen to this. And even though I've been in a men's group with you for a while. Uh, I just I learned a whole bunch too, so I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. And the honor is mine, you guys. Beautiful work you're doing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. This is fun. Thanks. Thank you. So. All right, guys. Say good night to y'all. Good night, good night everyone. Good night. Good, good Bye. night. Stay safe and have fun. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you Thanks, too. Curtis. Too. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.